Welcome to Think Sustainability. My name is Jake Morecambe. It's being called the biggest infrastructure project in human history, the likes of which planet Earth has never seen before. Involving more than 70 countries, 7,000 different projects, and estimated to cost around $8 trillion, the Belt and Road Initiative has become one of the most ambitious development efforts in history. Also known as the Silk Road Economic Belt, or One Belt, One Road, when translated directly from Mandarin, the initiative was first unveiled back in 2013 by Chinese President Xi Jinping, and up until this point has been seen as a way to fill in an infrastructure gap, connecting countries together and accelerating both national and international economic growth. However, the potentially disastrous environmental implications of the initiative, up until now, have gone unrecognised and underreported. On today's episode, we'll be jumping into exactly what this environmental damage looks like, and the forces behind it. Bill Lawrence is a distinguished research professor and director for tropical environmental and sustainability science at James Cook University. Bill says although the initiative has been making waves for the past few years, it's right now that we're in a do-or-die period when it comes to the environment. The scope of this, it's going to involve um, about half of the planet Earth. It's very much being coordinated and led by China, but of course there's many other nations involved. In total, the infrastructure and extractive industry projects will affect about 70 different nations, across East Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, the Asia-Pacific region, large expanses of Africa and Europe. It's being very heavily capitalized by China, but there's essentially a feeding frenzy of activity by other potential investors and financiers right now. Uh, There's a major event happening in Hong Kong. It's interesting in that this, again, seems to be one of these events where they're Many of the prospective investors are uh, attending and lining up. Um, I didn't see a single speaker of a slate of a few dozen speakers. I didn't see a single speaker addressing anything to do with the environment or social uh, issues. It was all about investment, finance, uh, things like that. The other issue I think that's really pushed this up onto people's radar screens has been a changing perception of China. China's geopolitical aims, I think, were seen to be quite benign a few years ago. And there's been a growing sense of unease about a few developments. Um, One has been, of course, President Xi Jinping's uh, maneuvering to effectively have himself now appointed as the uh, effectively the leader of China uh, for life. Another thing that he's done is to have this Belt and Road Initiative formally inscribed in the constitution of the Chinese uh, Central Communist Party, which means that it is effectively a crime, illegal, for any Chinese national to criticize the program. On top of that, what you have is a very non-transparent situation anyway in China. According to the recent rankings by the 
Global Journalists Association or something like that, of 180 nations that have been ranked in terms of their media openness, China ranked at 176, which is, you know, right at the very bottom. So essentially what's what you've got is, I mean, it's very clear that the geopolitical and economic aims of the program revolve very much around China. And then with China increasingly being seen as certainly on the one hand, uh, having a very strong interest in promoting what you might refer to as open markets, but on the other hand, obviously having a strong geopolitical agenda, and then having a whole set of other issues that I would call red flags around a lack of transparency, a really almost monolithic potential level of control over elements of the program, and the fact that it's just, as I said, the biggest thing that's really occurred, I think it might be the single biggest financial ventures in human history. And I seem to recall someone comparing it to the Marshall Plan, which was, of course, the the huge financial scheme to help Europe recover after World War II. And I believe that it was, the point was that it was larger than the Marshall Plan. So there's a whole series of reasons, Jake, why I think suddenly this issue has appeared on the radar of a lot of people, although quite frankly, it's been something that we've been tracking for for a, a number of years. Why go so far as to inscribe this into the Constitution? How can you go about doing something so drastic? Well, I think it's an indication of how powerful President Xi has become. And this program is very much his personal baby. It's very much his personal, you know, his pet project. And it is absolutely central to his agenda and his long-term vision for seeing China I think really ascending to be the global superpower. There's a very strong interest in China in seeing the yuan become the dominant global currency. And so replacing the dollar and the other currencies such as pounds, British pounds, sterling, as major currencies for trade for everything from petroleum to many other products. It has a lot to do with a geopolitical agenda, which is very much about putting China front and center China does not really accept criticism, especially anything aimed towards the Chinese Central Party. They will certainly acknowledge and accept criticism aimed towards Chinese corporations and the public-private partnerships in some instances, but anything that's aimed towards the, the Central Party and its policies and its leadership is really completely off limits. I mean, it's actually quite remarkable in China. You actually have some of the the most dramatic uh, and highest levels of what might be called very fervid patriotism in China and nationalism. And I think that one of the things that, of course, contributes to that is a lack of an open media, because what the public are hearing is a very pro-government perspective and one that is, for instance, if you compared it to Australia or Canada or the UK or the United States, where you have an open media that asks a lot of critical questions about government and you have an opposition party, which asks a lot of hard questions about policies and about government. These models of open debate and discussion are really foreign to China's way of operating and they've become even more so under President Xi because he has, he is increasingly ruling with an iron fist. 
He's shutting down even more so online discussion forums. I know myself, I've been to China many times, and it's actually much more difficult now to get access, you know, from inside China to, as a foreigner, foreign national, to information and to international internet news sites and, and any kind of information. Uh, we are unable to get any of the information that we're producing, which has been translated into a number of languages, including Mandarin, into China. We've tried in many ways with media stories, with articles, with um, videos, and we just have found it a giant wall. So I think there's been a whole set of developments, and because we're seeing the Belt and Road Initiative really taking off right now, you know, in the sense of the ground is being broken, the projects are being initiated, is a growing concern and restiveness about what the broader implications of this Belt and Road Initiative might be. And in terms of hitting the ground running, what is the plan for this infrastructure? What are we looking at here? Well, again, it's massive. I mean, it's you're talking about huge highways, roads, ports, energy infrastructure, astonishing number of hydroelectric projects, many extractive industries, which would be revolving around bulk mineral projects such as iron ore, copper, coal, oil and gas. A large fraction of the world's energy resources, fossil fuel resources, are concentrated in the, the 70 nations that would fall under the footprint of the Belt and Road Initiative. As I said, in total, there's about 7,000 individual projects that have presently been identified as falling under the Belt and Road. And I can give you an example of just one, Jake. I mean, these things sound so abstract until you start drilling down and looking at them in particular. And for instance, one that we've, we've grown very concerned about recently, last year, it was discovered that there's a completely new species of great ape on the earth. And it's only the seven species of great ape that's ever going to be alive. It's a new species of orangutan. Uh, it's called the Tapanuli orangutan. It's found only in a small area of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. We looked at its geographic range and distribution in really very considerable detail, published in the leading journal. And we found that the, really the only place it survives is where there's not roads. Its geographic range of its entire global population is about a tenth the size of Sydney. There's about 800 uh, individuals left. And it lives in this so tiny little pocket of rainforest that's already fragmented and under various kinds of human pressures. And China right now, this is a Chinese-funded and Chinese-led initiative to build a major hydroelectric project right smack in the middle of this last population of this critically endangered great ape species. The Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation all looked at this project and said, absolutely, we wouldn't touch it. And it's not just this ape. I mean, this is some of the most environmentally important real estate on the planet. There's tigers, there's elephants, there's Sumatran rhinos. I mean, this is just dripping with critically endangered species. So it's completely off the charts as a, in biological terms. So, you know, these major multilateral funders and, and other financiers looked at this and said, there's no way we're going to touch this. Well, the Bank of China 
in fact, if you look at the financiers of this project, of, of which there's the bank, the bank of China being the dominant one, but there's also an, another, I think about two dozen. So look, this has China's fingerprints and handprints all over it. China funded, China driven, China constructed, and it's happening smack in the middle of the critically imperiled population of one of the most high profile endangered species on the planet. So you can draw your own conclusions about whether you think that's a well-advised source of investment, but it's an example in some ways, I think, a, a poster child for the kinds of projects I think we could be seeing in the future, um, given the current model of development that we're seeing playing out under the Belt and Road Initiative. It's interesting given it is a Chinese-centric initiative, but so many of the environmental implications will trickle into countries and other areas of the globe that I guess are being swept in as part of this initiative. At this point, can we really quantify the overall environmental implications of the initiative? I think only in in very rough terms. Um, WWF took a shot at it. All they looked at were the major backbone projects. And what we know is that these backbone projects, which might be major highways or railroads or other transportation projects, they will, in fact, open up very large frontier areas. So we, we often refer to this as the Pandora's box effect. So really, that's just the first step. Once that's been opened up, then you tend to get a whole set of additional activities, such as land colonization and land speculation and deforestation and fires and poaching and, and a whole set of other activities. But anyway, WWF did look at this. Even with these just, just these backbone projects, the number of protected areas and what are identified as critical areas for uh, bird populations and, and bird communities, world heritage sites, which of course are supposed to be our most iconic protected areas, there were thousands of these sites that would be impacted according to this very preliminary analysis by WWF. Prior to everything gathering momentum as you were outlining before, have they been subject to any sort of environmental impact assessments? Because the president did come out and say, I'm not sure however long ago, but that this initiative was going to be green, low carbon, circular and sustainable. Are they subject to any sort of assessments? I mean, one of the things that's been very interesting about this whole process, and I should probably quickly add that we've been working in this space of environmental assessment, especially in the tropics and subtropics, but mainly developing nations for almost 40 years now. So, in fact, there's been kind of a a rain of green documents that have been coming out of China and a lot of promises and a lot of statements, exactly as you quoted from President Xi. The reality, we believe, is going to be actually very different from that. I think in fairness to China, one has to say that inside China, and this is where I think some people get quite confused, we actually have seen inside China some pretty substantial changes. China has done the world's largest afforestation program. That's not planting native forests. That's planting exotic trees. But they have planted more trees than I believe any other nation on earth to try to reduce soil erosion and to and also to produce just timber. They've set up a new large reserve network to conserve pandas. They're world leaders in investment in solar and wind technologies and battery technologies. They have 
really tried to step back after this incredibly explosive growth of their coal-fired um, power generation. They have stepped back now and are trying to slow down their consumption of coal. What's happening with China's overseas developments and its financiers and its corporations and public-private partnerships operating overseas is completely different. If you actually look at what really creates a great deal of anxiety inside Beijing, which is, of course, where the power brokers are concentrated, they saw this, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the other great communist state. And what they saw was a top-down state-controlled economy that collapsed. And so China has, since the 1990s, when China has completely altered its economic model into one that embraces free enterprise and also is very, very outward looking in the sense of much of its economy relying on extractive industries and development of other nations overseas. So what you actually see happening on the ground outside of China is very powerful attitude that the Chinese corporations and financiers should not be constrained, that they've operated very effectively in economic terms. We've seen environmental damage at a level that's difficult for me to describe because I've seen, I've actually seen so much of this on the ground. And we work very actively in Africa, in the Asia Pacific region and in the Amazon. And I just, words almost, words virtually fail me at times like this because of the scale of what we're seeing happening. And then also what we're seeing is a, is a, a very strong set of social impacts above and beyond the economic impacts. For instance, if you go to places like the Congo Basin, what you're seeing there is actually the pygmy populations, the traditional indigenous landowners, are being displaced and dominated by different tribal groups that are coming in, so-called Bantu tribal groups. And they're taking over very large expanses of land, opening it up, turning it into oil palm plantations, um, industrial logging, mining operations, really a, a tsunami of development activities. And so what we're seeing is traditional landowners are very much being displaced and dominated and overwhelmed by the scale of what's happening. So when you hear this verbiage about, oh, well, you know, this is wonderful and there's jobs and economic opportunities. In fact, what I would call equitable development, which would be something where you've got, you know, the benefits being spread around that are reaching different sectors of the society and different sectors of the economy. And what you're seeing a reasonable level of satisfaction, actually, just with the way that the development's proceeding. I would say that's very much contrary to what we've seen playing out on the ground in China. The prevailing view in China is one, that it's the host countries themselves that really have to be responsible for enforcing the environmental controls. China's not, that's not what they see as their job or their responsibility. And again, they have this very deep culture of a hands-off attitude towards their overseas corporations and financiers. So I think that when I hear President Xi making claims that this is going to be circular and green and a green civilization and that type of thing, I see that and I contrast that with the reality that I've seen playing out on the ground for many years. And I 
frankly conclude that that is a gigantic bunch of greenwashing. Do you think it's something that, well, we're kind of talking about, we haven't seen it done to this scale before, but you just mentioned greenwashing. Is this just on a scale unprecedented, the greenwashing essentially of radically advancing free trade? Yes. Look, China by, <laughs> or Chinese leaders or, or whatever have had absolutely no monopoly on greenwashing. We've seen greenwashing virtually every nation and, and many, many sectors and many corporations and many different interests and political interests. So greenwashing is a phenomenon that we just see happening all the, all the time today. But yes, it's a matter of scale. And I think it's also a matter of bald-faced dishonesty is almost how I would have to characterize it because it's just so far from the reality of what's actually going to happen. And what China is not doing at all is being forthright and frank about their development model, both internationally and also domestically. I mean, all you hear domestically inside China are wonderful, you know, laudatory stories of how this Belt and Road Initiative are going to be, you know, greatly facilitating development and creating all these wonderful opportunities for the host nations. One cannot claim by any means that, you know, many of the host nations do not need economic development and social development urgently. There's no question about that. But the development models that are going to be playing out, I believe in many circumstances, are going to be very much to the benefit of China and the host nations, their interests are going to be a secondary consideration to the Chinese financiers and entrepreneurs. To the degree to which the host nations are able to try to gain economically and socially, I think it's going to come down to them probably having to really negotiate and in some cases fight for their interests. And it also is going to really require that we get people to open up their eyes about what's really going on. Because what you've got right now is a rush of big global banks, big financiers, mutual funds across the financial sector, seeing this as a golden opportunity to jump in, get access to these new markets, get access to Chinese markets. And it's kind of a feeding frenzy. It seems similar to the kind of feeding frenzy we saw when a lot of Africa's was being opened up to mining. So I believe that there are going to be many examples where, in fact, projects are going to be major money losers, and in some cases, um, you know, serious environmental and social problems, some cases even in a crisis manner. Geographically, Australia is removed from the initiative. Are we removed from this conversation altogether? I don't think Australia is removed at all. Don't forget, Australia, of course, has strong trade relations, not only with China, but also with many other nations in the Asia-Pacific region. These initiatives are going to be affecting many of Australia's neighbors. Let's not forget that just a few years ago, Australia decided to grant China a long-term, is it 99 year? Am I wrong about that? But it's a very long-term lease on Darwin Harbor. China has made huge investments in Fiji. China is extremely active in Papua New Guinea, very active in Indonesia. I mean, really, Australia is increasingly in some sense, encircled by a growing economic, geopolitical, and military presence of China in the Asia-Pacific region. And it's going to, of course, have very uh, potentially strong economic implications. Within the next fortnight, you're 
travelling internationally to expand on this and speak to this further. Where are you going and, and what are these conversations that you'll be having? First, going to be uh, traveling to Cairo, Egypt, to give a keynote at a, a major planning session revolving around infrastructure and extractive industries for the Convention on Biological Diversity, of course, which is the major international convention to which most nations are a party, including Australia. I'm immediately then leaving to fly to Vietnam to give the keynote talk at the Asian Development Bank at a forum there also on infrastructure. And then from there, flying to Sarawak, Malaysian Borneo. I think this kind of alignment of intense interest in these issues right now reflects this growing concern about the implications of the Belt and Road Initiative and what it just may well mean for the environment and for society and for economies and for the broader geopolitical situation that we're seeing playing out and changing really almost on a daily basis. The bottom line is, Jake, if we don't do anything, we're going to see some unknown set of things playing out. I've been working in this area long enough. I've, I, can, I think I can make a reasonable guess of what it's going to look like. But if we try, and if we especially try to get people, you know, to open up people's eyes, all, all we're really saying is this. Please, can we just slow down a little bit so there can be more public discussion and debate and disclosure? That's all, we, that's all we're really saying. And we think that if that happens, if there's more disclosure and discussion, then the public will be able to make much better and much more well-informed decisions. Because a lot of this stuff, most of this, these projects are just being railroaded through the approvals process. And that, is, in fact, is how precisely developers of all stripes like to operate. So they want to move things bang, 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 tick the boxes and get the ground broken and get the bulldozers in and just start you know, opening up the project before people can really say anything. And we actually also believe it's very much in the interests of the governments and the investors and, of course, the people living in these places to do this. Because the opportunities will still be there and slowing things down a little bit to try to say, look, is this smart development? Is this the development that we want? Because I'll tell you one thing, we are not anti-development at all, but we're pro-smart development. And I, we, what we see is way too much development that is not economically and socially equitable in any means uh, at all. And oftentimes is very destructive environmentally. So if we can just broaden the discussion, broaden the debate, have more, dis more disclosure, I think we can have an influence. It's gonna be much more positive than if we just remain silent about this and let this tsunami proceed on its own. Bill Lawrence, Distinguished Research Professor and Director for Tropical Environmental and Sustainability Science at James Cook University. That's it for the show today. If you like what you heard and aren't yet already, why not subscribe to us? You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You just need to search for Think Sustainability. We also have a website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. 
This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR Radio and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Jake Morecambe and thanks for your company.